Hey, how's it going, Jordan? What's up? What's up, Rob? How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Can't complain. How, how about you? Uh, I mean, I could complain, I guess, but I, I suppose I won't today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I complain. People don't want to hear my complaints, you know. Not That's not what this show is about. We did get some complaints that Ken was let back on the show, though, so... That is might, true. Yeah. I need to think We canceled that. yet again. Even after <laughs> bragging, after bragging that, unlike Twitter's shadow ban, we had a real, official, full ban, and then he just, he just flagrantly violates it again. You know, I feel for Judy in HR. I feel like she's gotten a lot of conflicting info about this Ken Klippenstein character... She doesn't know which way to, which way is up with this. We don't know what the ban is in place. Is it on the premises? Is it from the podcast? We haven't given her a lot to work with, and I got to use this time to apologize to Judy and HR. We got to do better in explaining this this, yeah, this Ken, rule. Ken's just out, out of control, and you can hear that yeah. on the latest premium yeah. episode uh, at theinsurgents.substack.com. Uh, if you subscribe, you get access to that episode. And all of our other premium episodes, you help keep the show going, and you also have uh, helped us upgrade our recording capacity, and that now includes video, which we are posting over on all of the other platforms, uh, primarily on YouTube, so please go give us a give us a follow there as well. Uh, but yeah, Ken, Ken joined us this week for a pretty great conversation on his story about Elon Musk and Tesla's autopilot feature causing a car pile up on the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. He obtained the security footage of that crash. We got into that. And also the world. A whole lot of drivers forum. not following the five meter rule on that. Very unfortunate. <laughs> that was our takeaway. Yes. Yeah. The that was the main takeaway. That pile up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also yeah. the, uh, the world economic forum where all of our faves are there discussing yeah. uh, the economy and uh centering you the worker in that conversation yeah and just making sure that there's an understanding amongst these powerful individuals just how many people need to be thrown into the fire in order for the line to continue to go up because that's always the most important thing and you know there's this there's a very spooky situation for some of these folks over the last couple of years where they saw a few more people getting you know tax credits a few more people getting a helping hand Thankfully, that's been dealt with thanks to the Biden administration and, you know, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Mancha, uh, who are also at uh, Davos. So really, they were able to breathe a breath of fresh air. So that was nice to see them kind of celebrating and in their element in uh, Davos. Yeah, a lot, really good conversation, a ton of fun. Uh, it's always nice to have Ken on the show. Uh, you can check that out uh, at the insurgents.substack. Okay, well, <laughs> insurgents.substack.com. Uh, just five bucks a month or 50 a year, I think. I don't know. Whatever Something it is. Something like that. You get I think a it's 55. You subscribe for a year. Okay. Yeah. Well, we yeah. appreciate everyone who has subscribed and listens to the show. We we, we love you all, uh, especially if you're making fun of Rob and the replies on Twitter. That's always great. Those like are that. my favorite nope. listeners. You guys not get so VIP much status. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> In any case, uh, today we will be speaking to Beatrice Adler Bolton, uh, who's one of the hosts of the very popular Death Panel podcast, author of Health Communism on Verso Books. And you know, we've tried as much as we can. As Jordan mentioned in this interview, we're not smart. We're not epidemiologists. We're not doctors or medical professionals by any stretch. But we've tried to like continue to talk about the ongoing COVID pandemic and the sort of uh, rickety decaying healthcare system, both in the US and uh, Canada. We had a really great conversation with Beatrice about all these issues and the way COVID has, has thrown our entire understanding of the of our healthcare system, you know, into really stark relief. It was really great to have her on the show. Yeah, I'd say let's get into it. It's, it's a great conversation. I, I loved it and I learned a lot. Absolutely. So, I agree. Let's uh, bring on Beatrice Adler-Bolton, who's going to be joining the program right after this. And now we're joined by Beatrice Adler-Bolton 
author of the new book, Health Communism, and co-host of the Death Panel podcast, which is wildly popular. Go check it out. Uh, Beatrice or B, how's your day going? How are you? I'm good, thanks. My day's going good. It's been a long three years covering COVID, and, you know, the longer we do it, the more used to it I get. So we've got some really good episodes coming out this week, and I feel like for the first time in a long time, despite how bad the discourse is, we're not so much on the back foot when it comes to COVID as we have been for months now. Uh, that is encouraging. Yeah, it's it is it it's been like it's been a lot a long time now covering this this story. Like we didn't set out to cover this. We started the podcast right around the time that the pandemic started, so it kind of inadvertently became a COVID podcast. But yeah, it's has been a it's been a, a a long a long road that's led us to this point. It's been it's been fascinating and demoralizing watching it play out. So. <laughs> That's why I'm yeah. hoping you could you can inject us with some of that of uh, some of that optimism because sometimes we're lacking with that when yeah, it comes to COVID and also other issues. <laughs> uh, so, B, before we get into uh, the book, the podcast, where we're at with COVID, this new variant, and some of the major players on the national level in the COVID conversation, we want to ask you a pretty tough question that we ask everybody just to understand who we're dealing yeah. with and who we're talking to. So we've asked everybody, and now it's your turn. B, are you a gamer? <laughs> I would say I'm adjacent because okay. I okay. I All don't right. see so good. You know, like uh, your your listeners may not know this, but I have an autoimmune disease and it affects my vision. So. I can't really play games anymore, but I do watch my partner and co-author um, Artie play games all of the time, and I'm really looking forward to the new Fire Emblem. So I feel like I like totally observe counts. it. You know what I mean? It like yeah, counts, it counts, but not yeah. technically a gamer. Yeah, it's not about it's not necessarily about playing games. It's more of the lifestyle. Like, do you are you part of that lifestyle? Or and if you are, then you're a gamer, you know. Yeah. We're we, we're a welcoming community. <laughs> we're not we're not gatekeeping games. No, we're not going to gatekeep. <laughs> Ga gamekeep. Yeah, we've uh, got enough of that business. Has already uh, played The Last of Us, and is that a series uh, you two are watching? Yeah, we haven't watched the series yet, but uh, I mean, honestly, that game is one that I've played actually because they put a lot of work into trying to figure out how blind people could play the game. So there's like a lot to mess around with in the accessibility control. So yeah, no, I mean, have it came out what, like yesterday or earlier this week? It's, it started on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't caught it yet though. It's tremendous. And since you've played the game, you'll, you'll not appreciate a miss. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. not a miss at it, all. That's a relief. That's a relief. <laughs> And the emotional the emotional beats that you remember hit just as hard as they do in the game, and it is absolutely brutal. Um, but it's so good, worth, worth checking out. Yeah. Uh, but let's get into uh, more important uh, topics. So you and Artie recently published your book, Health Communism. Uh, I've seen so many glowing reviews online. People really, really love it. Uh, admittedly, I have not finished yet. It was one of those books I got over holiday break. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this break, and then as so often happens during holiday breaks, I just don't end up having the time to do that. But it is like literally next on my list because of how uh, well received it has been. Could you talk about the book? Uh, why people listening should read it and pick it up, uh, and, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the perfect book to read if you want to ruin like a holiday dinner, you know, if you really <laughs> just want to tank every conversation. Um, I'm not really joking, but part of what we have done for a long time on our podcast, Death Panel, is cover a lot of different things that sort of encompass this wedge of the political economy of health. And so we really wrote the book 
as a way for people who might not have the same background or have any background, they might not have left politics, but a way for folks to really kind of figure out how to get from zero to seeing where we're coming from when we construct the kind of lens that we approach things with on the show. So, you know, in some sense, it's it's a, an attempt to not only kind of like give the left a new angle and some new fuel when it comes to understanding how healthcare and health in general fit into our organizing and our political theory but it's also in in so many ways an attempt to name something that we really don't talk about which is the current state of how we live and our kind of commodified very very complex system of of health systems right that that make up this vast multi-continent, multi-billion dollar industry, right? That is that is incredibly central to not just things like the pandemic response or our own individual relationship to health or healthcare, but just to the broader concept of what we understand health to be in general. So it tells a bunch of different stories and attempts to introduce people to a couple key concepts like the uh, idea of extractive abandonment or the worker surplus binary. And then we take these kind of ideas which are about looking at healthcare and looking at health and looking at labor and extraction and carcerality, how that can sort of teach us places to find cracks in in capitalism's facade, essentially, sort of pushing that beyond a lot of the ways that we've thought about these things before. And so then we kind of walk through a bunch of different examples showing from a historical materialist perspective how various ideas, you know, about the priorities in terms of how health is constructed, how labor is regulated, how things like pollution are regulated, down to things like, you know, labor policy and the minimum wage and student debt, these arenas all have within them embedded some fundamental ideas about the way that health is. And and it's really kind of essential to the construction of many of our relationships with our jobs, right? And so if we really try and break out what the idea is and try and look at it at a very granular level, it 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 appears like less of a kind of gigantic too big to tackle problem right it can take it not in a personal responsibility direction but in the kind of macro direction of seeing the patterns show up in nursing homes in prisons in your own health insurance in the nhs in the us system sort of where are these similarities and then how can we kind of take this new way of looking at how health is kind of embedded within capitalism and use that to try and destroy the capitalist chokehold that really takes us from, you know, the position where we are right now in the, in the pandemic and I think is going to put us in a position that's going to be much worse over the coming months. It makes it much more urgent to interrupt some of these really extractive cycles that are just part of how capitalism constructs uh, the way that it manages bodies. Yeah, and this kind of chokehold you're talking about, I mean, this is what's been responsible for this uh, arc, uh, this pandemic response arc we've seen from the Biden administration, who campaigned on criticizing Trump correctly for Trump's many failures during COVID and his failure to really do much to contain the virus. And it's been this kind of like, again, this slow uh, pulling back from every single health measure that was once in place or that they once uh, claimed to promote. And it's led to this point now, um, you know, over two years later, where they're basically a part of a bipartisan effort to just make people forget that COVID exists or that there is still any pandemic going on or that there's any risks really at play uh, anymore. So, I mean, how has it been for you since the time you've been covering this subject and doing the podcast, watching this kind of slow motion car crash of the Biden administration just handing back every single uh, effort that they were at once making to uh, to control the pandemic. 
I mean, it's been frustrating, but it's not been terribly surprising. We've been writing the book while covering COVID sometimes twice a week on on death panel. And health communism actually doesn't talk about COVID. It talks about COVID once in the introduction to essentially say that we don't want to exceptionalize COVID. We want to emphasize that the the kind of lessons that can be learned from COVID are things that can be learned from the pre-existing political economy of health. And so it's been really frustrating to see the Biden administration prioritize the economy over reducing sickness and human life, or even just reducing the stress and suffering of so many people being sick at once and having to sort of deal with that as a a labor issue. I mean, healthcare workers are exhausted, but not just healthcare workers are exhausted. Everybody has been under the same kind of pressures of just what it's like to live in a society where so many people are sick at the same time. If we look at sort of, you know, whatever you think about COVID, it's undeniable that to layer uh, COVID on top of our normal seasonal respiratory infections is just going to create a lot more, right? Like even if you are the biggest COVID denialist, you can't look at the fact that you know, okay, yeah, we have flu, we have RSV, and now we also have COVID. And so this additional burden of sickness is is really taking systems that were already pushed to the point of really just stress and fracture and and really, really honestly kind of breaking them. And and it's been both kind of difficult and and also almost reassuring to see the system work as it should, right? Like we've made things leaner and leaner and leaner because we've wanted to make it cost effective. And we have these kind of ideas that, you know, have dominated the way that that we work for, for decades, the kind of neoliberal efficiency um, paradigm, right? And it's been really hard to see the Biden administration lean into that as as thoroughly as they have, but also they're kind of proving our argument in the book right. You know, they're kind of showing <laughs> they're showing all their cards. They're not just saying the quiet part loud. I mean, the contradictions the, are on full display. Right. I mean, I, I just like from last week in the Washington Post, Ashish Jha, the White House COVID response coordinator, said, quote, I am worried that we are going to have for years our health system being pretty dysfunctional, you know, not being able to take care of heart attack patients, not being able to take care of cancer patients, not being able to take care of the kid who's got appendicitis because we're going to be so overwhelmed with respiratory vi- viruses for three or four months a year. Like he is saying right then and there, you know what a really good solution to this problem would be, right? That he's laying out Medicare for all. Let's increase hospital capacity. Let's do some central planning. Let's do some global central planning in terms of drug supplies. I mean, for God's sakes, we're running out of children's Tylenol left and right. Like COVID is a fucking disaster, but it didn't have to be. There were decisions that could have been made very differently about how we wanted to manage resources, how we wanted to manage information, knowledge production, how we wanted to share risk. And what we've seen over and over is the exact sort of prioritization that we lay out in health communism play out again and again and again. And so in some ways, (laughs) it made us less worried about publishing a book with like a title that might really piss people off because we're like, you know what, like COVID has really pushed us there that like people do want to know, like, how do I get a way to understand like what's going on that makes sense? Because if you're just looking at COVID and you're not looking at the whole political economy of health, you might be like, what is the Biden administration doing? This goes against all moral you know, code or my understanding of, of the Democratic Party even or like progressivism or liberalism and what it stands for. But if you actually zoom out and you put COVID in the context of the political economy of health, well, this is how everything else is, right? Like we are seeing yeah. actually just the privatization of COVID. And that should be a lesson, not just about COVID, but about what we've done to all of these other diseases and all of these other you know, important processes of health, right, and moments of care prior to COVID that have created the kind of landscape that we do not want COVID to be pushed to. 
but which the Biden administration is hell-bent on pushing us to. And it's it stresses me out because right now, this is the moment that we have to stop the privatization of COVID. And Biden's team is really playing this uh, as inevitable. And that in that jaw quote that I just read, right, like he's playing it and, and framing it as if this is just going to happen. Like, we're going to have for years a dysfunctional health system, like as if there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Like in the already so famously very functional American healthcare system. Um, yeah. And it's not just us. Like, it's Canada, too. It's the UK. Oh, yeah. It's Australia. It's New Zealand. It's all over right now. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to mention. I mean, that's one of the things we're seeing in Canada right now. I mean, Canada, that's long been held up as one of the main differences between Canada and the United States, which is our, our uh, universal healthcare program, such as it is, not really universal, but still we do have a single payer healthcare system. There's been kind of vultures circling that for now generations who never wanted the system in the first place. It's been years of the kind of neoliberalization and the cuts and the the clawbacks and and it's you've seen it kind of start to atrophy. And now in that kind of classic sort of disaster capitalism uh method, you see that they're trying to kind of put the finishing touches on the system and now switch to a private system use the inefficiencies and the problems that are directly there put into place by decades of cuts and decades of underfunding, and then use that as an excuse to transfer into a more private system. You have Doug Ford in Ontario, where this is going on right now, who all the federal funding he was getting to put into the health system in Ontario underspent, like literally just didn't even give it to the where it needed to go, and now is using the inevitable chaos and the problems and what is going on in the Ontario healthcare system and using it to transfer to a private system. And I have no doubt that that's going to be a trend we're going to see a lot more of um, in Canada. We have telecom companies getting involved in, in healthcare now in Canada. It's it's absolute madness. And the whole COVID pandemic has been an excuse for these kinds of uh, vulture uh, capitalists to swoop in and and take advantage of this, uh, of this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, American consultants got paid along the way. Every time we see privatization, you know, there was like a McKinsey slide deck or, (laughs) you know, there was some sort of proposal there about maximizing these systems. And this is actually something we talk about extensively in the chapter of our book called Border, where we really talk about how the kind of uh, financial morals of, of health insurance and the way that we pay for health care in the United States, regardless of what country you're in, your health system has been influenced by the way that Americans have conceptualized health finance. And so one of the things we really kind of argue is like, yes, you know, there are single payer systems, but there's nothing that exists that's like what we're demanding right? We need to push towards frameworks like all care for all people, not sort of hold Canadian Medicare up on a pedestal in the United States, throwing our comrades in Canada under the bus with our rhetoric here, painting a kind of too rosy picture of Canada. You know, it inevitably, it's it's a real lose-lose situation. And at the end of the day, it disempowers both of our, our movements politically. And ultimately, at, at the end of the day, it's like not really very radical to be like, talk to each other and listen to each other. But ultimately, this is what health justice movements really need to do right now, because it, you know, the the sort of scale of the enemy that we're fighting is not one that's contained within borders. Yeah. So one of the things that's really frustrated, I know Rob and me um, over the past couple of years, and I'm sure it's been frustrating to you as well, is, you know, when Biden took over after like Rob pointed out, campaigning largely on Trump's failures to respond to the virus, you treat it as legit, a legitimate threat to people's health and safety, and focused on a more economic approach, reopening things as soon as they could. You know, Biden's done the same thing, but they tried to have some measures in place at the start. And then they've consistently rolled those back, like mask guidelines moving more to a suggestion and then you know now not even required at all on flights or public transit or anything like that um let alone like a, like restaurants or theaters or anything like that 
but other things that they've done that have really just drove me insane uh, have been, you know, CDC guidelines around returning to work. And in December of 2021, that was when they shifted from, you know, you get a positive or you get a negative test and you've been at home for a while. Then you come back. Then they just they moved to this rigid like five day guideline. The reaction and defense from like a sensibly liberal people defending that when people would criticize it and justifying it with so many of these things well there's been new research there's been new findings the science has changed all these types of things you see trotted out in defense of whatever the biden administration does which is ultimately a pro-business move getting people back to work sooner means you know more productivity or or whatever you know not letting them not letting them heal uh, forcing them to work when they're sick just because of some rigid guideline ultimately just helps those companies and I, we see the same excuse trotted out oh well the science has changed and that's something we've seen time and time again from you know Biden administration officials uh, or you, you spokespeople who are kind of connected to the administration but not officially in it surrogates if you will how does that those types of justifications make you feel what should people really understand about these the science has changed and we've learned more about the virus type excuses for bad policy decisions i mean it's so frustrating this decision in particular is a almost like a bad example, because it's one of the most blatant, right? Because you had administration officials out there saying, listen, I know we said we were following the science. And then there was a, a sort of press hit or Politico reported that, you know, CDC officials felt kind of blindsided by the announcement and a kind of walk back happened where they publicly admitted from multiple administration surrogates that the decision had been made to prioritize getting people to work because there were so many people getting sick from Omicron because Omicron had changed the picture, not from any phenomena of viral evolution or anything having to do with the virus or the environment that the virus was in, but because we changed our response to the virus and our behavior and we stopped masking and we really leaned into what we've been jokingly calling our Beyblade era, where we just really let it rip, especially <laughs> in the United States. And like, nice. you, Gamer. <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, the, um, like the sort of situation was is that we had created this impossible moment for for labor right so many people were sick the guidelines said 10 days which by the way the who announced i think today or yesterday that their new guidelines go back to 10 days because that's what the science actually says is that you are infectious for up to 10 days, some people who are immunocompromised like me can be infectious for up to 20, 30 days. I tested positive for 18 days recently. Like, you know, this. so <laughs> point of the matter is, is that this, this situation specifically, they said right now we're prioritizing the, the economic sort of reality and we need to make sure that people can get back to work and we don't have generous enough sick leave. And so we're doing it this way. But this is not the only decision that has been made with these priorities in mind. We've seen this over and over. And the example that I think is best is the OSHA guidelines. Biden campaigned super hard. I'm going to come in. I'm going to issue OSHA guidelines, not just for healthcare workers, for all workers. I'm going to make sure the OSHA issues standards and that we're going to reopen safely. And a condition of reopening safely is making sure that OSHA has extra money for enforcement, that OSHA is ready to enforce these guidelines, and that these guidelines are prioritizing keeping people's workplaces safe from respiratory diseases. Did we see that? No. It took them months. They wouldn't answer questions about where the OSHA guidelines were. When they finally came out, they were just for healthcare workers, not all healthcare workers. Then we saw them rolled back. Like we've never gotten these OSHA guidelines that were promised that were the condition, you know, for reopening. We got the vi we got the sort of we got the vaccine, right? Which is fantastic. But the vaccine needed help. The vaccine needs 
the other things to back it up, right? Like we saw those great efficacy numbers because we had workplace protections in place, because we were masking when they were testing them and when they were doing the trials. So if we were to implement masking again, if we were to clean the air, make sure the air at everyone's workplace was safe, right? Which would just also be generally good. We could go back to having like that high of vaccine efficacy, but instead we let it rip. And now we're here in virus soup and it fucking sucks. I mean, I'm sorry. It's like, <laughs> this is what we did. Yeah. That's what the Biden administration did. This was, you know, they could have done the OSHA guidelines. That would have been fantastic, but got to prioritize the economy. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, speaking of, you talk about how what we're seeing as disturbing and, and perverse as it is, is the system working as intended. And that's something that we all need to kind of internalize. One of the scary things about COVID for me is like, because we all know that the, as as we've heard many, many times from all these kind of COVID denialists, that it's got this low death rate and that makes it okay. That it's like, a, it's a, most people that will get COVID, the vast majority will recover from it. And that's just supposed to be the sort of end of the argument. But with very little understanding, that's the thing that really disturbs me, that very little understanding about the long-term consequences there's going to be for people like I imagine both of you that have had COVID and recovered, and we don't know what that's going to do to our health on a long-term basis. Or the things that we do know that it's going to do, none of it is looking good from the research that's been done so far. But this seems like something that is going to be a reoccurring and increasingly severe problem over the next couple of years and decades. And like, I, I don't know, it's like, I think the, the sort of dark and cynical and somewhat maybe conspiratorial side of me looks into that and says, well, that, that's the system working as intended as well. And if we have a, a generation that after leaving the sort of productive worker years has a significantly lowered lifespan, that's actually a good thing for capitalists, you know, because they're dealing with a situation now where the baby boomer generation that's taking up so much resources in the kind of retirement they were they're kind of like pulling up the ladder for everyone else and assuring that like people are not going to have the same kind of longevity in their lifespans because we're all being exposed to this mass disabling event you know it's extremely grim stuff i mean never in the past have we used like a low fatality rate or a low rate of long-term consequences to as an excuse not to intervene polio <laughs> right? Polio was a yeah. a multi-generational effort that only affected a small portion of cases, right? The vast majority of polio cases were asymptomatic. We, <laughs> we have this, this moment where so many people have worked really hard as knowledge producers to, to make that kind of fluff that you need to manufacture consent. You know, you kind of need that echo chamber to start sprouting from somewhere because really, like, you know, when you cover COVID the way that we cover COVID on, on death panel, like I, what we sort of prioritize is making sure that people can know what's actually going on, right? But I think a lot of the minimizers operate under this kind of bullshit mentality that comes from, you know, really bad, like airport book level, um, like behavioral psychology, where they say that, you know, when people are afraid, they can't make good decisions. So it becomes about terror tactic management and making sure that people don't panic. And it's this very paternalistic way of approaching pandemic communication. And so, that's been really the kind of tenor of, of so much of the, the kind of stuff that we all have to push back on so often if you're someone who sort of posts about COVID or thinks about COVID at all, right? Like you're surrounded by people saying it's mild, mild death, no big deal. Like this is fine. Like, you know, oh, people with long COVID, I, I saw a study somewhere that says all of them recover in one year. Well, you know what? Like you can find a study that says whatever the fuck you want, yeah. right? Like this yeah. is what science is. It's not a settled debate. There is no one science, right? So like, you know, you can find a study, you know, John Ioannidis, who's a very famous minimizer at this point, he was paid by a JetBlue executive to, to work on a study that he put out. Um, what it, just one of the financial contributors, he would say that I'm being, I'm giving like ad hominem, ad hominem, 
criticism of him right now, but I'm just like stating plainly. They like contributed $10,000. And then he put out the study that was like, no one's going to die from COVID. Everyone should fly on airplanes. It's totally fine. We don't need masks. Like, great. You know, this is good. And he put it out in like March of 2020, right? (laughs) Like you can find a study that says that chocolate will kill you and you can find something that says chocolate will make you live forever, right? Like having that kind of, that kind of like data or that science has been used as a kind of cultural cachet in the, in the process of manufacturing consent. And this is really what some of those key minimizers like Monica Gandhi, Vinay Prasad, Lena Wen really traffic in is they have these kind of little nuggets and they have these kind of little, you know, sound bites that are good, really good answers to like the question of like, well, there are a lot of people around me right now who are sick. Is this okay? Is this bad? And they're like, well, immunity debt, right? Immunity debt because of immunity. Or you're like, well, all of these kids are sick. No, 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 no. It's good for kids to get COVID. It's fine. Right. And really what it is, is it's telling people look away. But it's it's also, you know, it's not just paternalistic bullshit. Like it has real world material biological consequences. And unfortunately, in capitalism, when people die, it's also profitable. I mean, uh, when HIV AIDS drugs got a little bit better and mortality rates got a little less, um, you know, staggering. Funeral directors complained that they were going to miss the golden years of the early HIV AIDS epidemic. You know, on the Biden administration's ledger, they don't think about death the way that we think about death. When people die, those are people to us, right? Like at the federal level, that's it's on an actuarial balance sheet. I mean, that's CBO logic, you know? There aren't humans there. And that's ultimately what's been driving the pandemic response. And that's that's why it's so brutal, you know, and that's why it's been so hard. You know, one thing that's really been, I wouldn't say surprising, but just kind of appalling to watch over the past couple of weeks is as China somewhat eased its restrictions and cases started to increase in China, you saw a ton of people here call for travel restrictions, on China. These are the, largely the same people who have spent the past three years minimizing the virus, saying it's not a big deal. Go out to your Applebee's. You're not wearing a mask. It's you're American for doing so. But and now crit- suddenly and criticizing China's zero COVID policy simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, as, as they've eased restrictions and cases have gone up, now it's whoa, whoa, whoa we can't let them in here. They're going to give us COVID. So, what, like, what is it about, beyond just like xenophobia and and just outright racism? Like, th- what? How do you make sense of their cognitive dissonance and how they approach uh, this virus and uh, as it relates to China? Oh my gosh, it's so hard, right? Because you have all of the most beautiful hypocrisy on display. You have the the red baiting, you have the kind of liberal paranoia, you have the two-facedness, but you also have this weird, sickening desire that I think a lot of these folks have to sort of punish China for having stuck it out with, uh, you know, a zero COVID approach for so long. And I think ultimately some of that kind of rabid nature of the response is, is ultimately, um, you know, this is kind of how normalization works, right? This is social pressure. This is an attempt to sort of make anyone who might be considering a zero COVID strategy feel that, you know, the political window on that has closed. And functionally, what this does is it starts to shape our our perception of what's even possible and what's reasonable to expect. And and then that becomes the agenda, right? And I'm not trying to make it sound like magic, because it's not, right? But if Every single framing of sort of a zero COVID strategy that you've read about, let's say you're the average New York Times reader, maybe you read The Atlantic also, like you're going to have read that zero COVID is crazy, that it's impossible, that, you know, China is not being honest with the United States, that we need these kind of travel restrictions, that this is a, a health security issue. And, you know, like sort of what do you come away with? Well, you know, maybe a perception of COVID that's really kind of terrifying in a, in a, um, a a kind of way of like thinking that, that COVID is now a priority of international security or something because China's lying and we're going to see, I'm sure we're going to see the whole sort of 
where did the virus come from origins question like get get sure. turned back up in this context but at the end of the day like all of this kind of uncertainty and um really kind of bad faith straw man framing of, of what China's been doing and then sort of why they changed and even what the protests have been. Everybody's been taking the situation on the ground and sort of using it to make their own COVID arguments over and over. And that's really what we've seen. And so many people, I think, who have been consistent commentators are really relishing kind of cheering the fact that that the kind of last zero COVID holdout has collapsed as if this is a real win for them. Um, when unfortunately, it's not a win when people get sick and die, like you sh shouldn't, I shouldn't have to say this, but like, you shouldn't celebrate that, you know, but people do. And I think, you know, there's been talk as well that, you know, when you're talking about zero COVID um, and the, the Chinese zero COVID policy. I mean, yes, it was about protecting people from the virus, but it was also about buying time so they could get their health system up to a point where they knew that it wouldn't collapse under the stress that uh, this mass uh, infection would create. I mean, it's a country of 1.4 billion people, um, which I think makes a lot more sense in that context as well. And that's the thing. I think, I think if, we're, if we're criticizing our system and the sort of the way the failures of the capitalist system or successes, depending on what side you want to, what side you're looking at it from, as you're pointing out, it is important to take a look at at these other systems and and health systems that spring up in socialist societies and how they're different and how we can learn from them. I don't want to totally praise China though either, because like the the other thing that I, I forgot to mention is also they really just had a different approach to also prioritizing the economy. And there were some really awesome uh, early statements from the WHO where they were like, "China is doing awesome. They're prior they're doing lockdowns to make sure they can keep factories open, so they can keep production go going to maintain the supply chain." Like. China's doing its duty to contain COVID within its borders. This is, I'm talking about like February, 2020. This is the coverage of COVID at the time. So, you know, one of the things that, that like, you know, Xi was very clear about from the beginning was like the way to keep the economy open was to control COVID, right? And like, we've gone on the opposite lesson of saying the way to control COVID is to, you know, let it rip. And I personally agree with China's strategy. Like, Clearly, it kept cases down. We know that masks control all sorts of respiratory infections. We can just have less sickness, not just COVID. Like, yeah. What do you like getting the flu? Like, do you <laughs> like the fact that, like, if you have young kids, they're sick maybe four times a year? Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to be sick. Like, I'm chronically ill. Like, I know. Like, no one wants to be sick all the time. It we seems like some people do. Like I've seen people saying these things like, Fine, I'm, on, I'm on the bus. No one's wearing a mask. Everyone's hacking away. It's just like life's supposed to be. And it's like, what is wrong? What has happened that to you? Sucks. What is that wrong with sucks. you? That you would, that you would, that's would be your takeaway. <laughs> it's very disturbing. Yeah. I don't get it. I just, I hate being sick. Uh, and not that this is like some bold take, but just like, I'm still so confused why like I get, I, at my gym, I'm the only person like ever wearing a mask, and I'm like I always get these weird looks, and it's like I don't want to get sick. Like, what, what do you, I don't know you. I I don't, I don't know what you're out doing. Uh, and a lot of it's like usually I go in like the mid afternoon, so there's like local high schools are getting out around that time, and like it'll like flood with younger people. So I try to get there before, but if I'm not, it's just like packed with kids, and probably none of them are wearing masks in school. So it's like. I don't want to be around you. You've just been like licking your desk all day. Uh, but one thing, one person I did want to get your take on, because I know you have a lot of thoughts and I really want to save time for this conversation. I want to get your thoughts on, and I hope I want readers or sorry, listeners to understand who Lena Wen is. So Lena Wen was the former public health commissioner in Baltimore before being the president of Planned Parenthood before being asked by the board of directors to leave within one year of getting that position. A lot of questions there. I don't think I ever heard the full story, but I was wondering why, because she was like, you know, lifted up nationally because of this position. And then she kind of wound up in the Biden orbit and was as, as a public health uh, expert had a lot of takes on COVID. At first, it was like, oh, okay, I wonder what she has to say. Through her tweets, 
through her her commentary on TV and especially through her column at the Washington Post, she has produced such bangers as I'm a doctor. Here's why my kids won't wear masks to school this year. Biden is right. The pandemic is over. It's time the Pentagon ended its COVID vaccine mandate for the military. And most recently, we are overcounting COVID deaths and hospitalizations. That's a problem. B, is that a problem? What's what's no. going on and who is she? <laughs> Before I say anything else, let me just... She needs this disclaimer. We are undercounting deaths in the United States. When people die... Uh, the doctors don't go to the death certificate and say, oh, broken arm, COVID gunshot wound, I'm going to put all three. Like, nobody does that, right? Lena Wen's arguments exist like this. She's, she's like created an imaginary United States where liberal bleeding heart doctors everywhere are putting COVID on death certificates to make the American public understand that COVID is a problem. And so we need to make sure that, that nobody is like accidentally getting rec- recorded as, as dead from COVID when they're, you know, maybe dead from a car accident or from whatever. And, and of course, like to make this argument in the Washington Post, she cites two infectious disease physicians who one of them brings vibes and the other one brings some, things that they maybe imagined while they were showering one morning, mostly these kind of hypothetical scenarios of like, well, what if someone broke their arm and also tested positive for COVID? But they also give examples like, well, what if somebody had a heart attack and, and, and they get marked as dead with COVID, right? And so you kind of have this way that, that Lena uses her medical authority over and over and over in the pandemic that we have seen that is toward this ultimate project of kind of like individuating the pandemic response, turning it from a collective problem into a problem of individual people. Maybe it's a fault of your biology. Maybe it's your behavioral choice, but she has been all about choice and choice is kind of like the thing that she's been selling throughout the pandemic. And, you know, for a long time, she was a kind of, physician advocate who kind of sold herself as someone, you know, an empowered woman, a woman of color. Um, You know, when she was working in the public health department in Baltimore, she did support harm reduction initiatives that were decent, right? Like she's not evil. The world is not black and white. Like sometimes people who mean well do terrible, terrible things that are really obnoxious and make you cringe, you know, like, and I, I think she ultimately thinks that the fear and the kind of panic of COVID and the, the potential kind of contagion of people thinking that they're vulnerable when they're not is really what is more worrying than the virus. And part of that is ultimately kind of informed by her own ideas about you know, how the body works and her own ideas as a physician. But, you know, the way that she's used um, as this kind of informal surrogate, right? Like we see these kind of ways that she really backs the Biden administration up, trying to justify some of these moves as being based on the science. And the kind of science is always this very anecdotal, like, scientism of, of being like, yeah, children are happier when they can see each other's faces in school. And so they learn better. And And at the end of the day, she has been kind of this physician advocate that, you know, is played as someone fighting for health justice, who's really coming from this angle of of social determinants of health and equity. And all she's been doing is using, you know, using her platform to reinforce the fact that COVID is class war and to help support decisions that have made people sick, that have resulted in higher levels of spread, that have resulted in worse social determinants of health for so many people. And ultimately, she's out for herself, right? She's out to build a brand for herself. And she's out to sort of, you know, send her message. When she was like working at Planned Parenthood, one of the things that her big initiative that she sort of championed was that she wanted to depoliticize abortion and rebrand it 
and rebrand Planned Parenthood as a general healthcare provider, not an abortion provider. Like, politically, I disagree with the idea of like pushing things under the rug to try and avoid them, right? But like, if that's your ideology and you sort of think that like, well, COVID's bad, but like what's worse is a lot of people thinking they're sick when they're not and this kind of idea of there being malingerers or people with long COVID sort of questioning the validity of, of, of the lived experience of long COVID, you know, we may see um, her change her mind. But ultimately, I think that like, if you look at her past work, and if you look at this kind of um, way that she's advocated for things over and over, we've always seen the prioritization of like it being a problem of individuals and not one that's the fault of the federal government, not one that's the responsibility of the federal government. So when we see this kind of advocacy in the pandemic, like it, it's not only helping people understand, you know, like how the virus is affecting their lives and, and doing it incorrectly, but at the end of the day, it also creates the idea that, the decisions that are being made are kind of backed up by a a physician consensus that actually doesn't exist. Like many people disagree vehemently with Lena Wen, but she kind of takes the center role as this really kind of, uh, you know, medical expert par excellence that, that drowns out a lot of other voices who are, you know, maybe people who have been working with COVID patients on the floor who are actually experiencing the the volumes of respiratory disease in the hospital that they're in right now and don't have time to sit on CNN all day long like Lena Wen does, you know, I mean, and, and that's ultimately like when we see people become like kind of professional advocates and mouthpieces for their profession, we see this happen often. Unfortunately, it'd be good to, um, you know, leave it on try. We talked about leaving on maybe trying to uh, leave it on a hopeful note, which is not something that happens often on this program. Obviously, it's very dark. If you're talking about the American healthcare system and the way it's responded to COVID, I think it's a really good point that you you mentioned that it's been uh, a sort of lesson in seeing this this system work completely as intended. Um, and as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's, we're seeing that in Canada and other places as well as, as it's being used as sort of a cudgel to destroy what vestiges of a, of a public system that we, we once had. Um, but I mean, it, it's interesting how, you know, your book's called Health Communism. And it's really interesting how I think for a lot of Americans and for socialist movements around the world, healthcare has been such a vital uh, part of that. I'm inspired a lot by the the Cuban revolution and the way, you know, building health clinics in the country and in these impoverished communities. Um, and the ESCOM Bri was such a big part of the, the Cuban revolution and why that became really popular with, with the actual, um, like the, the poor people of Cuba that had really had no access to these kinds of facilities prior to that. And the way Cuba, you know, trains doctors and sends them around the world and sends them into the countryside and how they have even a very poor country, a country that's under this constant blockade and threat has managed to still put together what amounts to a pretty remarkable healthcare system, even with all the limitations and all the, all the problems that they have. So when we're, we're talking to, you know, the, our movement in whether it's in the U S or Canada or the West or whatever you want to call it, what have what have been your takeaways about how these things, how like the left should, uh, such as it is, should approach this issue and how we can use this issue to win political power? We saw there was this Medicare for All was such a center piece of the whole Bernie movement, which I think got a lot of uh, younger people uh, into the into these more like left wing ideas that expanded into other things. Um, but we also saw the way that the establishment really came together to use the health terminology, like some like white blood cells attacking a tumorous growth when Bernie was looking like he was going to uh, possibly win the democratic nomination. So given all these factors, how do you think people, you know, in America or the West should be using healthcare to push for a more equitable uh, economic system overall, where we decommodify these, these things um, and these industries that are vital for people's survival? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Medicare for all is something that we believe in a, a lot on death panel. We talk all the time about how it should be the floor and not the ceiling. And sometimes people mistake our, our critique of Medicare for all for not supporting it. So I want to just make absolutely clear that like, you know, I end every episode with Medicare for all now, solidarity forever for a reason, right? Like, as a kind of organizing perspective, we've often approached the way that we've sold healthcare policies in the way that 
we understand healthcare policies, which is through this lens of the kind of individual perception of health, right? Um, and this is something we we talk about in the book and sort of why we talk in early on in health communism about, um, for example, kind of some of the early developments and some of the early rhetoric used against socialized medicine, because you'll, if you read the book, you'll start to notice echoes of things that you probably rhetorically battled with during the 2016 and the 2020 campaign. Like we all you know, have seen these echoes of these same arguments over and over. And for many years, we've used similar arguments, like the idea of saying, well, Medicare for all is good because it'll save money, right? Or Medicare for all is a good decision because it's more efficient. And ultimately, I think what would be more advantageous was rather than sort of positioning Medicare for all as something that is you know, maybe popular because it can onboard people to the left, maybe because it can be this um, politics of compromise, right? Because health does have this huge scale. And so, you know, maybe we do need to still collaborate with insurance companies and maybe it's okay to entertain those ideas. You know, all that kind of discussion was something that was just a constant conversation on the left, right? We want to shut that down. We think there's an advantage to shutting that down to say, you know what, people are afraid that socialized medicine is going to lead to socialism. So what? Maybe that's what we're actually advocating for over here. Maybe that's what we said that we've been advocating for here this whole time. Let's just sort of accept them red baiting us and, and move on. Because ultimately, Medicare for All was popular, not because people were like, oh, I'm going to save money. <laughs> right? Medicare for All was popular was because it offered people bargaining leverage. It took people who were divided by thousands of different private insurance plans who are at the mercy of their employer. It took people who are union organizers who have spent years fighting to maintain the smallest little benefit slices that they can as employers like strip it back and strip it back, right? Medicare for all was popular, not because it's baby socialism, but because it's like taking the idea of the IWW and applying that to one avenue of health finance, right? It's like taking all of the people in the United States and instead of having them be in, you know, a bunch of different workplaces and a bunch of different unions, they're all in one union, right? They all bargain together. This is what Medicare for all could offer. We like to look back at lessons like the actual implementation of Medicare in the 60s to try and sort of inform our analysis. And when we tell people about this, people don't tend to actually kind of realize it happened. But one of the things that Medicare was able to do, and that was, again, a smaller bargaining pool. This was only older and disabled people who were being put on this plan, but they were still able to use that to desegregate hospitals in the South by saying, okay, we've made this big payer, desegregate, or we won't certify you as a payer and we won't pay you and you won't be part of the Medicare system. Like this is why Medicare for all was popular because people saw not just that they would have cheaper health care, which obviously everyone wants, but that because their health care could be a way for them to become a part of something. And it could be a way to not just transform the balance sheet at the end of the month about how much they paid for health care, but like transform their whole life, right? Transform the way they think about governance and the state and their role in the state and their role in democracy. And so these are the things that like as leftists, like we want to do. We want to go beyond just rehearsing talking points and getting it right. Like movements are messy, but ultimately we lose by playing respectable. And I think it's time for us to sort of embrace, embrace our edginess, right? Embrace the fact that we do scare people with our ideas a little bit, but that like our intent is good and our work is towards liberation and our work is against the extractive abandonment of the population, which right now in the United States, one of the best, quickest ways to drive a wedge into capitalism is to pass Medicare for all, right? And this was something that really ignited people. So why is it not on our platform right now? Why is there not energy behind it? Why are we sort of losing that battle? And I think part of it is because we're really used to thinking about having our politics as leftists sort of happen at the permission of the Democratic Party. 
And we hope that like our book and our show can can help inspire people to trust their own analysis and trust their own actual experience of how they've been through the world as a worker, as a non-worker, as someone who's been exploited, extracted from, taken advantage of, neglected by the healthcare system, you know, regardless of what country you're in. These are the things that actually, like, I think we can build our analysis around and we can really embrace and try and move forward because ultimately we're not going to win Medicare for all by like compromising with Pete Buttigieg on if we're going to do an eight or a 10 year glide path to Medicare for all who want it. Like that's not liberation, right? Like that can't be our horizon. So let's trust ourselves to actually think a little bit bigger, a little bit more concrete. We don't need to have a plan, but we can have somewhere on the horizon that's as simple as Medicare for all. There's no fucking room for private insurance. And it has to include home and community-based long-term care. That is a step towards liberation to me. That creates a ton of leverage over pharmaceutical companies, pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, employers, hospitals, clinics, doctors, all of it. This is just one piece of legislation. You know, this is just one tiny piece of policy. Think of everything that we can do. And yeah, like we're up against a lot, but like who hasn't been at any moment in history? Like we, I like to take the advice of Warren Berlant here, who always said that they wanted on their epitaph and they died in 2021. I think it's on, I think it's on their gravestone actually. But like, they were like, I want my epitaph to say, they did what they could do at the time. And like, that's what we actually have to do, right? Like we have to do what we can with the time that we have. And we have to stop wasting time worrying about if we're going to sort of scare people by offering them a kind of way out of the way that they're used to thinking about politics, because that's ultimately what we're all here to do and why we all sort of even give a shit about being on the left at all at the end of the day. I mean, it's not like people on the right seem to care all that much about scaring people with their genocidal rhetoric about immigrants or the LGBTQ community or disabled people. So it, I don't think it should stop us either. You're right. And I just wanted to say as well, just to quickly, that I think one interesting thing that was that came out of that fight push for Medicare for all and the Bernie campaigns, even though they weren't successful, is just how much widespread bipartisan hatred there are of these insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. Like people hate these companies. They hate this system. And it's just, it takes, like, that's that's a really uh, potent uh, way to organize people, even people that might not necessarily uh, have always agreed with you. You know, people really don't like, don't like the system as it's set up. That That's a, that's a wedge that you can use to bring people into uh, our, our program. Absolutely. I mean, as my colleague and co-host Phil Rocco always says, it's not conspiracy, it's hegemony, actually. You know, this is not like some grand, like, Pharma is not conspiring with Aetna to fuck you over. Like Pharma and and Aetna have been given permission to fuck you over by our systems of governance. That's what they're for. You know what I mean? It's like, and this is like what the left can do with that same critique and offer like actual answers to people who have those same frustrations who are coming from a perspective of like doom and nihilism and thinking this is some grand conspiracy, you know, to like put silicone chemicals into everyone through like, I don't know, the vaccine or whatever the fuck. Like. <laughs> it's something like that. So B, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your insight. This was a really great conversation. We're really happy you joined us. Uh, where can people find uh, your podcast, Death Panel, and where can they pick up the book, Health Communism? You can find us uh, on any podcast platform by just searching Death Panel or we're at Death Panel underscore on most social media. And you can also find our bonus episodes uh, at patreon.com slash Death Panel Pod. And yeah, if you want to check out Health Communism, pick it up from Verso, steal it, borrow it from a friend, request it from your local library. I don't care how you get it. Like, I just want to, uh, I want you to read it and I want to hear what you think. So. <laughs> B, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been great. Really appreciate it. 
Hey everyone, thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>